Hello, 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 and cha-cha-cha. Hi, friends, this is Alex Townsend, and this is, once again, the Aspie Files, coming to you from our beautiful condo here in Fort Myers, Florida, and someone wants to say hi to you all. Go ahead, babe. Hello, I'm cha-cha-cha. It's so nice to be here. <laughs> and happy Friday, everybody. It's Friday, as Friday. We it's Friday as we record this. Yay. Yeah. And for a lot of you, that means payday. And can I just say, for the record, if I may, be, how do I say this, um, if you did get paid t uh, today or yesterday, and you're still moping around, like, be happy you have a job. Be happy you have a job. Like, do you know how many people that are, because of COVID or before COVID, are living on the street or who are jobless? And they would love to go to work and they'd love um, payday. I, I guarantee you, if you talk to most people, I'll guarantee you as long as they, you know, can do one good thing with their paycheck, even if they have to use the rest of it for bills, they're still happy. Like, I, I am positive. I'm positive of that. Uh, I feel that way anyway. You know, it's interesting. I was watching an interview that Kelsey Grammer did recently with a broadcaster that I'm a fan of named Graham Bensinger. If you've not seen Graham's work, he's absolutely fantastic. Kelsey was talking to Graham about um, the early days when he was at Juilliard. And he actually had talked about at one point he was homeless, but yet he still had two jobs. He had a, um, a construction job that he did during the day. Then he would go to Juilliard like mid-afternoon uh, near dinner time. And then at 9 p.m., he'd work all night at a hotel. Wow. Yeah, and he would, like, did the laundry there, and he would, you know, rake up the beach. He would clean the tennis court. He would clean the tile off the pool. Mm -hmm. He said by the end of summer, he had 700 bucks. Wow. But he said, you know, I, he didn't feel um, like he was struggling. He said, I was working. I was going to Juilliard. Uh, he also said he, he showered at Juilliard so no one knew he was homeless. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, that's, you got to admit, that's, that's pretty smooth to be able to do that. Right. Uh, but he said, as long as I had a roll and uh, I could afford some salami, I was happy. Mm -hmm. And I guess I'm the same way. Like, if I can be able to afford, you know, uh, something to eat that I like and I usually only eat on payday, I'm happy. And for me, that's usually either tomato soup or potato wedges. Mm -hmm. You know, because I love my potatoes and Jennifer will vouch for that. Yeah. Um, in fact, we, we got some potato wedges recently from Publix, did we not? We did. Let me just say this. Publix, to me, is what Food Lion was to me as a kid. Mm -hmm. Like, when I was a kid, it was Food Lion. Mm -hmm. And now it's, like, Publix and Winn-Dixie. Mm -hmm. So, but, um, anyway, um, we want to open today's show by uh, talking about um, one of our favorite programs that we watch uh, religiously, whether we're home together or I'm at work and Jennifer's over the phone. And that program, of course, is the greatest quiz show on the planet. I think it's the epitome of game shows. It's the reason game shows are awesome. And that show is Jeopardy. <laughs> we just recently saw Alex's last episode. I know we were late to the party, but we were kind of dealing with um, not bad stuff, but just doctor's appointments and um, me getting called into work at the last second. And um, just, you know, family time. Time with, right. time with my mom. So we kind of, um, and we were also looking at a house, were we not? We were. We were looking at one in, in uh, was it Matt Lachey? It was Matt Lachey. Now, did, did we get to go inside that house? No. But we saw pictures of it uh, online. Right. Well, wh what did you think of the house? Very nice. It was? Mm -hmm. And now, uh, what, is, it, is it two bedroom, two bath? Three bedroom, two bath. 
three bedroom, three bath. Yes. Really? Very nice. Now, like from the outside, you wouldn't be able to tell that, but I could, I could tell from the, um, the inside. Yeah, yeah. You can't tell from the outside, but in the inside, you could probably tell. Right. But um, no, we finally, we finally, finally uh, were able to uh, finish Alex's last episode. Right. And uh, but what did you think of it, babe? I thought it was very good. Yeah, could you have? Let me ask you this: Could you have? Could you have noticed? Did you notice like that he was really weak? I couldn't. You can't. You cannot even tell. Really? Right. I, I noticed the same thing, but you said what was the reason? You said you think it was. I think they puffed him up. They being his team. His team, yeah. <laughs> he made him look very good. Yeah, but I also think Alex, this is just me talking from being a fan of Alex all these years, he was always a fighter. He was a fighter. He was a fighter until the end. Mm-hmm. He was a fighter until the end, and I know that he was going to do Jeopardy as long as his voice could do it, mm-hmm. as long as he could walk out there when Johnny Gilbert said, and now, here is the host of Jeopardy. Alex, jump back. Right. You know, as long as Alex could get out there and go, thank you, Johnny, you know, right. he'd, he'd be fine. Right, he'd be fine. He was also not one to be about himself. No, he was always with the other people. Always, the show was always about the contestants. Right. And his last episode, we we actually did surprisingly well on our last, on the, his last episode. He did. On uh, Clueless. You know how many questions you got right, babe? How many? You got nine right. All right. That's really good. Um, and of course, I uh, got a uh, 16 right. Very good. I did very well, yeah. Well, my average is about 12 to like 15. And if I got 20 right, if I, if I got like 20 questions right, that was a great night. That was a great night. It really was. But, you know, people are asking me too, you know, will the show change with Alex, without Alex, do I think the show has changed? Because they've already done new episodes with Ken Jennings. It's already changed. What do you, what, how do you, have you notice the changes? Just, it's just like that mother, it's just different. Well, and do you think um, it's because of Ken Jennings or just because, just without Alex? Just without Alex. So you've noticed right away? Yes. Do you think Ken Jennings is doing a good job? I think he's doing a fabulous job. Me too. Could you pick up... I, I picked this up very early on. Did you pick up that he has really, really taken the ball and studied Alex's technique? Yes. No one... Now, let me just say this to be very clear, because I know people are probably going to, you know, send me comments on Facebook and, you know... No one can replace the great Alex Trebek. Nobody could. No one. However, like with any great game show, mm-hmm. the show must go on. And let's put let's put this in perspective for game shows. The Price is Right now. Al, uh, the Price is Right. Bob Barker, one of my heroes, and I think one of the greatest hosts of all time, right up there with Trip Beck and Pat Sajak and Alan Ludden mm-hmm. and Richard Dawson, mm-hmm. um, Gene Rayburn, people like that. Um, Monty Hall. <laughs> so I could I could go on, folks, because I love my game shows and chill vows for me. Mm-hmm. They're like I love game shows the way that people go nuts about Star Trek. Mm-hmm or Game of Thrones, or cartoons. I just, I just absolutely love game shows. And I love that they bring people together um, and they force us to root for other people. And you end up, you know, realizing that when you root for somebody else, that's a great spirit to take with you. And a great sense of optimism. It's a really, really great uh, char- characteristic to have. 
But anyway, so I want to go back to Jennings. I I have always liked Ken Jennings, just for the record. I've always liked him. I thought he was a great contestant on Jeopardy. And then he was fabulous on the All-Stars uh, last year with uh, James Holzhauer and Brad Sutter. And they recently, we're going to talk about this a little later in the podcast, they recently just started doing a series for ABC called The Chase. That's right, The Chase. Now, I started watching, have you seen it yet? No. Oh, you're going to love it, babe. Uh, and what's great about it is it's a faster-paced version of Jeopardy. The contestants go on, they're answering trivia questions, and the level of difficulty is about the same as, um, as Jeopardy is. But what's great about it is, um, again, the format is, it's about the contestants, it's about, you know, whether it's the contestants challenging the All-Stars, or whether it's about the All-Stars, you know, being their nerdy, charming, funny self, which I always love about those three guys. I actually predicted, Jennifer, that they were going to get their own show. That's how funny I thought they were. And that's how entertaining they were. And I went, yeah, these guys are going to get their own show. It's just a question of, is it going to be a sitcom? Is it going to be a panel show? Like, what's it going to be? But I know it's going to be great. I know that. Um, But, um, no, I must say, uh, Ken's done a fabulous job taking over. He um, has found a way to be himself, but not get in the way. Any great game show host finds that particular trait. You have to be able to be yourself, be funny, um, but understand that the show is not about you. You're the host, you're the moderator. That's when game shows work it's at its best. When they're the star, when they become the star of the show, when the host becomes the star of the show, that's a problem. That kind of becomes a problem for me. Um, I mean, if, if they're allowing the contestant if they have like a secret talent and they let the contestant go out there and showcase it and they want to play along, that's one thing. But when that show becomes, when the, the, the host becomes a star, that's a little bit of a problem for me. It really, really is. But, you know, that's, that's just my take on games. That's my take on Jeopardy. What I also am excited for is that um, it's not just Ken Jennings that's going to be um, in, the, in the running for uh, that gig. Like a lot, I think a lot of people are under the impression that Ken Jennings has got this in the bag, that he will be the permanent, he will be the next permanent host of Jeopardy. And I say, and I know this, again, this is probably going to offend some people, not so fast. Not so fast. Not so fast, because there are, along with, uh, along with Ken Jennings, the other people, this, I mean, this week I just read about other hosts being added to the list. Katie Cork is on the list, who I've been an admirer of since, you know, I was a teenager. I think she's terrific. Uh, she's great on the Today Show. She's great on 60 Minutes. She was great on um, um, the CBC News, her own talk show, and the work she did for Yahoo and the work she's been doing for uh, National Geographic. So I think she's going to do very well in, in that realm. Um, the, uh, form, uh, the quarterback for the Green Bay Packers, Aaron Rodgers, he's going to be – he's going to guest host. As a matter of fact, he actually has been on Celebrity Jeopardy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and um, so they're, they're going to be hosting the show. Bill Whitaker, who's a correspondent for 60 Minutes, who I am also a fan of. I think he's a great reporter and um, he's a really great guy. That's our dog. That's our dog, Chestnut. <laughs> She's, Chestnut. If, you hear, if you hear barking in the background, that's Chestnut. She's barking at the construction workers downstairs. 
and we're all <laughs> test up. This is not the chest up podcast. <laughs> so that's a good segue. That, that's a good save, babe. That is a good save. It really is. Uh, we were talking about Bill Whitaker, right? I actually um, have been, I've, I've seen his work at CBS News for a long time. Um, but, you know, uh, he recently um, joined the uh, crew at 60 Minutes and he's done a fabulous job there. Uh, and another uh, addition to the guest host list is Mayim Bialik. Bialik. Bia- Bia- I think I, did I say your name right? Yeah. Mayim Bialik. Mayim Bialik. I always butcher your name. I'm sorry, Mayim. But anyway, I, I like her very much as well. Very funny, very witty, very talented, very smart. Um, many of you probably remember her from the days of Blossom. And then there's a larger audience that, that knows her now, um, that knows her because of, uh, the CBS series, The Big Bang Theory. And I've always said about that show that gave, um, that was the sitcom that sort of, uh, gave the nerds, um, a thumbs up and a salute and that they were gonna that they're that they're gonna be all right you know and um i'm always surprised that she was nominated four times for that for that role on um and she never won but she won the critics choice award uh two years in a row 2015 2016 so but i um and she's also uh Mayim is now in a series now on uh the fox network um get the name of that for you guys out there it's called uh call me cat and it's actually based on a British sitcom called uh, Miranda. And it's about a 39-year-old single woman who struggles uh, against society and her mother that says you can't have everything you want. Um, how do I say this? She's trying to prove to her mom that you may not have everything you want in life, but you can still be happy. And so in the series, um, Maya, uh, who plays Cat, is leaving her job as a professor at the University of Louisville. And uh, she decides to open um, a cat cafe in Louisville, Kentucky. So I have to say, I, I, um, I'm going to start watching that this weekend because I think it's really good. Um, I mean, I'm not, I'm not a big cat person, although Jennifer is, and so is um, Jennifer's mom. We gotta, get, we gotta get Pauline on the show eventually. I know. Yeah, just, I mean, I'm, I'm, I just got, we just got, we just gotta uh, talk to her a bit before we go, before we put her on the air. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, we're also going to have Richard on, um, as I've mentioned, we're going to have him on the show as well. Um, as far as um, Poetry Corner, we, I promise you guys we're going to get Richard on at least once a month. And uh, I can't believe we're at January 15th already. January 15th, it's going by so fast. Yeah, so we want to make sure we get him on there before the month is up, especially if he has a new poem. Right. And um, you guys were all, were all very nice to him last season, and I told him we're going to get him on at least once a month. Once a month. Yeah, and like we'll fi- we'll find a way to fit it in there, probably at the end of the episode, because I think that's where it would fit the best. Mm-hmm. It did that way last time. Right. But um, no, in our um, I know we go on many tangents on this uh, segment, but you know, my my conclusion of Jeopardy is this: that show's going to survive. It is going to survive. It is the quintessential perfect. Everybody loves Jeopardy. Yeah, no matter whether you're a kid, whether you're in college, whether you are um, just starting out after college, i.e., you know, you're uh, adulting uh, or you're uh, venturing into your own Melrose Place. <laughs> we, 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 we watched Melrose Place last year a little bit. I have to say it was pretty good. It was good, right? It's quite good, yeah. I don't think there's going to be a reunion, though. No. 
No, well, one of the cast members is in prison, so I doubt it's gonna happen. So, so I, I don't, I don't think it'll happen anytime soon. Although I would like it to. Yeah. Uh, I, I would like it to. That would be nice if they did, but yeah. Um, but uh, again, there's a lot of there's a lot of factors in there that have to um, happen before that that occurs. But it is as I as Jennifer just pointed out, everyone loves Jeopardy. You may not even be a big game show fan, but you'll always say, you know, not always, but in many cases, if you poll most people, it's the show that brings all of us together, despite age, despite race, despite religion, despite, you know, social economical, you know, factors. People love figuring out a little bit about everything. You know, to like a show like Jeopardy, you have to be curious about the world around you, you know, because I mean, the subject matters. I mean, they throw them at you in your face in the intro. Do you ever notice that? Right. I love that about the the intro they've been doing in recent years. Right. I just think it's really great, and I like that they show classic photos of Alex when he had the fro. Right. <laughs> that was really kind of cool. I gotta say, Alex had some pretty cool hair in the uh, in the seventies to about the mid eighties. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He sure did. He sure did. He really did. But um, yeah. So I. I think Jeopardy is going to survive. I really do. I think it will still continue to be a popular program because people like the format. They like that the contestants are the stars and that you have to know a little bit about everything. And I always loved in the first episode when Alex said, today our contestants are going to win money the old-fashioned way. They're going to earn it. (laughs) There's something, I think, to be said about game shows for that nature. Like to... To win money, you have to know things about the world. Right. That really, right. It's the same with Wheel of Fortune. Right. It's the same with um, Once Being Millionaire. It's the same with um, Pyramid, which Michael Strahan does a fabulous job with. It is... I think those game shows at their core work, work, work extremely well. Family Feud's the same way with Steve Harvey. Um, but the thing is, like... like it's price is right too. Like knowing pricing items, like a piano comes out, and you're you're actively engaged. You're looking at it and going, "Oh, that's a bad bid if they make something that's too high or too low, or that's a good bid, or I would have bid this or that, I would have bid that." And it's the same when you're playing Lucky Seven. When you see the first number, and then you're having to guess the subsequent numbers after that. Right. So. And Price is Right has, you know, had Drew Carey on for almost a decade. It's hard to believe. Like, it's, you know, it's been almost a decade and a half since he's taken over. Right. And may I say Drew has done a fabulous job with it. He's been funny. He's been witty. Um, He plays along with the contestants extremely well. I will say that. And, um, but in, in a sense that it's part game show part variety show with Drew it's the same with let's make a deal with Wayne Brady I'm sure a lot of people thought the same thing when Wayne took over as host in 2009 but I knew that Wayne was going to do a fabulous job with it because he's entertaining and he knows how to let the contestants be the stars at the same time Wayne brought his own skill set in there um you know the improving and the um singing and the dancing and you know when he does improv scenes with um his announcer Jonathan Mangum you know Family Feud's been the same way I mean Family Feud has had a subsequent host since it came back in 1999 you know Louis Anderson's been the host 
Uh, Richard Karn from Home Improvement's been the host. John O'Hurley from Seinfeld has been the host. But Steve Harvey gave that show a wonderful sense of spice that it needed. Right. He gave it a sense of attitude and and coolness and just that honestly I don't think we had seen on the show since Richard Dawson had hosted it in the late 70s or early 80s because when you think Family Feud there's two names you're always going to think of you're always going to think of Richard Dawson and Steve Harvey and I'm not knocking the other hosts that did it I'm not knocking Ray Holmes may he rest in peace we lost him too soon it's hard to believe it's 25 years since we lost Ray I know one of my favorite comedians and um he had so much more to show us and I'm, I'm, you know, he had six children and, you know, just, he was also on trying to get his career going again. And I know I'm going off tangents on here, people, so bear with me. But my point is this, is that if a format for a game show works, if the fans get it and they love playing along with it, if they're actually engaged, all you need is a great host. These shows will survive, Okay. Family Feud, Family Feud will continue. Um, Jeopardy will continue. Wheel of Fortune will continue whenever Pat Sajak decides to step down. Um, let's Make a Deal has done extremely well with Wayne Brady. I believe it will continue on. As Wayne is one of those guys. He'll do it as long as he can do it. Um, Monty Hall was the same way you know, in the, in the you know, periods that he hosted the show. So my, my point is that the future of Jeopardy is in good hands. Whoever the success, whoever is the next permanent host. But I like that they are exploring many different hosts. I've also heard that, you know, through the grapevine that George Stephanopoulos is in the running for this. So was LeVar Burton from Reading Rainbow, which I think is going to be really great. Um, and I know other people are going to be like, don't forget Star Trek, the next generation. Yeah, I, know, I know, I know, I know what LeVar Burton does. And Roots, and Roots. I, I, you know, my point is, is that game shows are exciting people like being actively engaged and they're also a great escape from this crazy crazy world that we're living in because we're living in some extreme times here you know we're trying to deal with a pandemic we're trying to deal with a new administration coming in we're saying about a one that was toxic and obnoxious and bombastic and inappropriate in so many ways but i also think that you know they bring us together. They make us happy. They make us smile. And they put us in a good mood before we have to go to bed at night and start the day over again. Because it's good to go to bed in a good mood. It's good to wake up in a good mood. I've always said that. And I'll always put game shows at the top of my list of things that do that. Um, and I will never say that about any of those stupid reality shows, be it The Real Housewives or Jersey Shore or, you know, any of those. Like, take it somewhere else. Don't need it. Goodbye. But, <laughs> um, but no, on balance, um, the game shows will survive. And believe me, as long as there are fanatics like me around that love talking about them, they will be around. Believe me. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to switch gears a little bit. and We're going to go into the nostalgia lane. And we're going to feature a band that I grew up listening to. You probably grew up listening to if you're a child of the 90s like I am. And if you're someone that likes the post-grunge sound. And 
I am proud to say I am one of those people. I grew up on Matchbox 20. I grew up on the Dave Matthews Band. But one band that we cannot forget when we talk about rock bands from the late 90s and early 2000s is, without a doubt, the Goo Goo Dolls, led by Mr. Johnny Reschnick. You know, it's interesting. I mentioned that they uh, made it in the 1990s, but by the time they had made it, they had been a band for nine years. They formed in 1986 in Buffalo, New York. And they say in an interview that the name of the band uh, was formed from a true crime magazine that was published um, from the 20s to about 1995 called True Detective. And they um, there was a toy in the um, magazine, and that toy was called a Goo Goo Doll. As uh, Johnny Reschnick said in an interview, we were young and we were a garage band, not trying to get a deal. We had a gig that night and needed a name. It was the best one we could come up with, and for some reason it just stuck. If I had five more minutes, I definitely would have picked a better name. Well, I can say um, for all of us who are fans of you guys and your music and what you mean to us, thank you for not changing that name, Johnny. Thank you, thank you, thank you. But <laughs> No, seriously, I mean, I can safely say they're one of those guys that, um, the Goo Goo Dolls, I should say, the Goo Goo Dolls are one of those bands that got me to see that there was more music out there than what I heard in my mom and dad's house and in my grandmother's house. So when I was a little kid, I grew up listening to to classic country music. So I grew up listening to Conway Twitty, Johnny Cash, Merle Haggard, Willie Nelson. Um, and at the time, the 90s, there was Alan Jackson and there was George Strait and there was Garth Brooks and Clint Black and Vince Gill and Travis Tritt, all talented artists. But by the time I got to, you know, third grade, fourth grade, I wanted to expand my sound a bit. And it was honestly, it was watching VH1, it was watching MTV, the video channels, um, that helped me become awakened to the fact that there was a little thing called rock music. And when I first heard the Goo Goo Dolls, it was on a wonderful song called Iris. And I mean, the opening song, the opening lyrics of that song, you know, I'd give up forever to touch you. I mean, first of all, if you've ever fallen in love with a woman, fellas, then you know what Johnny is saying when he's saying those epic words. You, you just know, you know that he's singing about someone that he loves more than himself that there are bigger things out there than his ego. And fellas, he's singing to you guys. You gotta know that. Uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful song. And that wasn't their first major hit, to tell you the truth. Um, they made it with their fifth album. And they made four albums by the time they finally made it. And I don't know how many artists today would get that opportunity. And also in an era where people are not buying records, not records, CDs, the way they used to. I still buy CDs. Even in the era of Pandora and Spotify and Amazon Music, I still buy CDs. I love collecting them. They're like baseball cards to me or, or um, issues of National Geographic or Playboy. But I remember, you know, hearing Iris and just absolutely loving it. What I didn't know at the time is that that wasn't their first major hit. I didn't hear their first major hit until a couple years later, and that song was called uh, Name which they made off their wonderful 1995 album, A Boy Named Goo, um, released 
1995, became one of the most successful rock albums of the mid-90s. And it went on to sell almost 2 million copies. And that song, that song essentially um, made them superstars. It got them from being a college band to essentially becoming a household name. And even, you know, that success led them to appear on shows like Beverly Hills 90210 and on Charmed. But it honestly, you know, you fast forward to just couple of years later and you hear Iris which is used on the um, soundtrack for a movie called City of Angels with Nicolas Cage and Meg Ryan um, I can tell you the impact that that song had on me um, always loved that song I always loved the intensity of Johnny's voice I loved his songwriting I love that his songwriting has always emphasized on hope and love and optimism and forgiveness and peace and not phony peace, real, real peace. And that includes confronting past issues that you otherwise would have ignored. And it involves saying I'm sorry to people that you may have had conflict with, you know, or just, you know, it's little things like calling your mom and dad and say, hey, mom, hey, dad, how you doing? Um, believe me, as someone who... Um, has been without a father for the past 10 years. My dad died 10 years ago this year. I wish I could call him. And I wish I could tell him about the success that I've had, you know, in this business. Um, as a podcaster and in TV production and tell him about Jennifer, he would have loved Jen. Oh my God, he would have loved to have played golf with Jennifer. Oh my God. I don't know if he would have been into the Goo Goo Dolls, but I think he would have liked Johnny for some reason. Uh, you probably would have told Johnny to get a haircut, but that's beside the point. Uh, no, no, but I mean, other other great songs that came up during that period included Slide, um, which, I mean, follows in that same realm of just love and hope and optimism and expressing, you know, how first love feels, how love in general feels, but especially first love. And... Everybody remembers their first love. I certainly remember mine. It was a girl named Samantha Roach who I met in the seventh grade gym class. Um, I thought she was cute and funny and pretty and sweet and great to talk to. She's very shy like me, though. Um, she didn't have Asperger's syndrome or anything um, of that nature, but she had been through a lot in her life. I'll just say that. Um, but she was always very kind to me, and her friends tried to set us up when we were in the seventh grade. They wrote, it's interesting, um, she wrote a fake letter, and um, I, I thought she wrote it. She later said, no, I didn't write it. My friends wrote that, and he gave me her number, and she later said, don't call me. Please don't call me. My dad will have a fit, and lo and behold, two years later, we wound up dating, and we dated for most of high school, and... Um, had to say our first year of college, that love fizzled. But, you know, um, as I segue through to the Goo Goo Dolls, I can safely say that um, their music helped me get through that very, very difficult time in my life, 2006. When I finished high school, I lost my grandmother and I lost Sam. You know, it's, um, and I'll say this to anyone that has been through heartbreak themselves, um, 
you will get through it. And honestly, sometimes it's listening to music that speaks to your heart and how you're feeling really, really helps. And, you know, I found myself listening to a lot of their music and Matchbox 20's music, really, both their, both those bands, um, during that period of my life. I went back and listened to um, the 20, 2002 album Gutterflower, uh, which is a wonderful album. It's got songs like Here Is Gone, Sympathy. You are the stranger than your sympathy. Uh, this is my apology. You know, and Big Machine, you know, ecstasy is all you need. Learn in the Big Machine now. Yeah. Um, and I'm not even going to attempt Here Is Gone. That's just too good a song. It really is. Um, and um, their cover of... Um, Give a little bit, which I actually heard during that period of um, 2006, a song called "Give a Little Bit," which was a cover of um, a song that was done by an English rock band called Super Tramp. That really is their name. Um, you remember that song, the "Give a Little Bit, Give a Little Bit of Your Love to Me." It's a great song. Um, again, if the lyrics were going across the screen, I could, no, 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 no. Um, I might do it at a karaoke bar one of these days. Um, and it's hard to believe during that period they made one of the best albums of their career. I think it's the best album they've ever made, and that's Let Love In, um, which has wonderful songs like Give a Little Bit and uh, Stay With You, the, cover, the title track Let Love In, Stay With um, Stay With You, Let Love In, I mentioned, Better Days. I mean, that now, Let Better Days is an absolutely fantastic song. It really, really is just absolutely fantastic in so many ways. Um, Because that song, again, it talks about um, forgiveness and moving forward from very, very difficult times in your life and making amends with the past and looking to the future. I mean, you hear that chorus. Now, this chorus, I'll definitely get right. Uh, the, so take these words and sing out loud Cause everyone is forgiven now Cause tonight's the night the world begins again And I just remember, you know, hearing that song when it first came out and I just I just thought it was great it really really is I mean you know it's easy to say that those guys sound the same on every single song or every single album and it's very easy to write them off as um poppy but I I would not argue that they're your classic American rock and roll band and they're ones that have managed to keep with the times and I it's very evident on their their latest album which is Miracle Pill which I have to say is just absolutely fantastic in so many ways I um I got the album um with a um American Express card that I got for Christmas from my mom and I remember knowing about the album when it came out um a little over a year ago, um, the guys were on um, the late the late show with uh, Stephen Colbert, and may I just say, Stephen gets the best musicians on his show by any stretch of the imagination. His musical list guest is just amazing. I mean, he's had Dwight Yoakam on his show. He's had John Mellencamp and Willie Nelson. He's had Toby Keith on his show a couple times. 
He's had James Taylor on a couple times. He's had Paul Simon on a couple times. He's had on Don Henley. Um, he's had on Coldplay. He's had on Green Day. He has had on Snow Patrol. Uh, Metallica, my friend uh, Derek's favorite band, uh, so I gotta give them a shout out. Um, and they're cool guys. I, I've, I've seen them on talk shows. They're actually really, really cool guys. Even if he, the music is noise to you, they're really cool guys. And so I'll, uh, I'll have to listen to their music one of these days eventually. So, uh, fans, if you are Metallica fans, hey, send the best songs of theirs out to me, please. Uh, but no, back to Miracle Pill. Uh, no, Miracle Pill, um, I found out about when, um, I woke up one day after um, going to bed early the night before, and I just remember um, going on their, the um, the Colbert uh, YouTube page. I came across them being on the show, and the song they did was the title track, Miracle Pill. And I remember thinking to myself, these fellas are absolutely on their game again. They're mixing the sound that they had in the late 90s, and they're mixing what they would sound like if they were a new band today, if they were just starting out. And I like the mixture of it. I also like the background harmonies that meld so well. I also like the the song, the message of this album is um, trying to find light at the end of the tunnel. And it also preaches about love and how we are a lot stronger than we think we are. And that optimism and that confidence, you know, what I like is that it's not, it's, it's confidence, but it's not brooded in arrogance. And I think our world could use a lot more of that, of confidence, but not arrogance. I've said before, you know, we go to extremes in this world and it's kind of weird. Um, we are either very cynical and have no self-esteem and we don't want to deal with that frustration we have or we're too cocky and we're too arrogant and people you know, don't want to be around you because of that because you come across as an ass. What I like about the Goo Goo Dolls is that they have always stayed true to their message of hope and love and optimism and preaching for the world to come together and making amends with the past and moving forward, which is a very, very important thing. You know, I don't know if those guys were predicting that our world was going to take a, uh, a, a just a crazy U-turn, but, you know... This album got me through the last days of, um, the, I should say the last days of 2020, and it got me through the, it's getting me through this new year that we're in, and it is showing me that love wins in the end. I can say that on every single um, album they make, every song they make, the message is the same, love wins in the end, and if you wonder why I say that, first wedding I ever went to. The song that was played at the wedding was Iris. Never thought that would happen. But looking back, I'm glad that it did because it was a beautiful day. And I was with great people that, you know, I always root for. And, you know. And they're also coming to Florida, as I've mentioned on a previous podcast. I hope they'll come here. I would really like to see them live. But one of the reasons is because they came here in 2011 and I was grieving the loss of my father and was starting at a new school. And I just was 
distracted by so many things and I just didn't make the time to go see them. But uh, I'm hoping that this year we can change that. And, um, you know, in my list of, you know, bucket list concerts, we can cross off the Goo Goo Dolls because they were part of my childhood. They were part of my 20s. They're now part of my 30s. And to uh, Johnny and to um, Robbie and um, the rest of the uh, guys that are in their band and with them and leading the way, I salute you. You guys rock. this episode with a wonderful article I read in BuzzFeed, and the article is by a um, writer who has Asperger's, just like I do, and her name is Mar Elliott. So thank you, Mar, for inspiring this segment that we're about to do, and um, I hope you like it. I hope you tell all of your friends, and the article is entitled, Nine Things People Don't Tell You About Living with Asperger's. And I can safely say, hi, Chestnut. Chestnut wants to join us as well, so say hi to every say hi to everybody, Chestnut. <laughs> Pretty soon she's going to get her own show and I'll have to translate for her, but <laughs> I probably could. Um, Caesar Milan, where am I? <laughs> okay. Um, what's my next class, Caesar? Anyway, there's a sentence below the title of this article that I want to read. And I want everyone with Asperger's syndrome and everyone who has a friend or a family member with it to please listen to what the sentence says and everything else that I'm about to tell you. Here we go. I might be different, but I like the way I see the world. I might be different, but I like the way I see the world. Oh, it's like listening to opera. I mean, I I felt that when I read this article, excuse me, because everything that was in here has spoken volume to the almost 33 years I've been on this planet. And... Here are the things that Elliot, Miss Elliot points out um, in this article that I want everyone who's listening to comprehend very clearly. Number one, being normal is hard work. And Mar found out that she had Asperger's when she was 15 years old. I was 14 when I found out, and I was in the eighth grade. I was getting ready to transition to high school. And I already knew that I was very nerdy and I felt different than the rest of my peers, particularly those who I was mainstream with. You know, the thing about Asperger's was, and I can say this was my world uh, from the second grade until the eighth grade, I was in two worlds. I was in the special ed world for half the day. and the other half of the world, I was in mainstream classes. And like with Mar, I didn't develop the same as my peers. And, you know, the classmates that she grew up with and I grew up with, we learned to socialize and communicate. And because of that, we end up struggling to relate to the world that is around us. We just do, you know. We weren't into the same things that they were into. And in some cases... We were about maybe four or five years emotionally behind our peers. I still feel that way some days. I still feel like I'm a few years behind my actual age emotionally some days. Some days I do feel that way. 
And Mark goes on to say, I tried to keep my Asperger's hidden. And believe me, you, there are days I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to think about it. And I want to just keep it hidden. And I just try to go about my business and, you know, not let anything slip that, hey, you know, there's something that's in me that's a bit wired differently. She goes on to continue, I spent years trying to study the quote-unquote rules of communication, and I obsessed over learning how to be normal. Now, I did that too. I can relate to that because growing up, I was a huge fan of family sitcoms, and particularly, oh my God, um, I'm a child of the 90s, so that was, oh God, Full House, Family Matters, Home Improvement, you know, Boy Meets World, the goddaddies of them, really, of the 1990s. And... That's how I tried to figure out how to be, you know, normal and fit into the outside world. And I got to tell you, it's exhausting. It is, you know, it is challenging and it was tiring. And, you know, when you're a kid and when you wear glasses and you're you know, a bit nerdier than everybody else and you have things that you're passionate about, and for me, it was um, music of every kind of genre, country, pop, rock and roll, a um, little bit of hip hop, uh, some R&B. But my tastes were very diverse by that period. And most of that came from, you know, my parents. I mean, my dad would influence me on 50s, 60s, 70s music. So he raised me on, if we're talking the 50s, that would include Elvis Presley, Roy Orbison, Johnny Cash, Jerry Lee Lewis, Buddy Holly. Those were his favorites. You know, we get to the 60s and we're talking, you know, the Beach Boys, Aretha Franklin, Otis Redding, Marvin Gaye, Smokey Robinson and the Temptations. Ooh, a sip of that um, beautiful, beautiful um, sweet tea there. <laughs> my, my baby. <laughs> um... And then we get to the 70s, and oh god, there's the Eagles and Elton John, and um, who else in the 70s did he, did my dad like? Um, I mean, there was, you know, Cool in the Gang. Like, there was, my dad kind of lost his music appreciation after about 1979, though. And my mom, she was a fan of Don Henley as a solo artist, she was a fan of John Mellencamp. Um, and when we were in the car, we would listen to. 80s adult contemporary music, 90s adult contemporary music. Um, there's a lot of Rod Stewart in that um, in that playlist. There's a lot of Michael Bolton. So I was already appreciating music that my peers couldn't understand. I'll give you, I'll give you a great example of this, of the ignorance that unfortunately some teenagers had during that period. Um... Of the current music of that period, I was a huge fan of Usher. The first time I heard his voice, I just thought, wow, this guy sounds great. It's like, you know, what James Brown was to the 60s and 70s and what Michael Jackson was to the 80s and 90s, Usher essentially was to the end of the 90s and the 2000s. And, you know, a good portion of this last decade as well, but particularly for my money, the late 90s and the 2000s belonged to Usher as far as the male solo artists go. And I remember the first time I heard you remind me, you know, it was catchy and it was sexy and it was fun and it was a great song. And I, you know, I must say the video was awesome. He got his girlfriend at the time, Chili, from uh, TLC was in that video. That was really cool. 
You Got It Bad is my all-time favorite Usher song. I remember going to school, being the school bus on the way to school, and I would have that CD more often than not in my um, CD player. I had a portable CD player at the time. Um, <laughs> I remember growing up, the principal would always tell me uh, to put it away during lunch period and couldn't even walk around the hallways with it. They'd, you know, they'd take it away from me. Luckily, they never did. They never took my CD player away from me. Um, which, I, you know, hey, that was awesome for me. Um, I never had an, I never had a, an iPod till I was about 18 or till I was about, till I was about eight, till I was about 17 or 18, I guess. Yeah. So, you know, that's how far back, um, I was unfortunately with technology and, but you know, so I'm listening to it one day on the way to school and there's a kid that actually said to me, oh, you must be gay if you like Usher. And I went, What? And there were, like, literally, and I'm used to being, you know, called horrible names. I'm used to be calling, like, names like geek and nerd and, you know, um, weirdo and, you know. And I've been called, you know, gay slurs before. Um, he didn't use any towards me, but he did ultimately assume in his arrogant, homophobic way that if you're a male, you can't like certain music. And in his in his warped mind... Usher was in that group. I guess the same could go for In Sync of the Backstreet Boys because I always like their music as well. You know, I like their, I like the way that they sang. I love the way they sang a love song because I think they were able to communicate how they feel about a woman. I always admired those guys for that. Same with 98 Degrees, who I saw in concert when I was 12. Um, and it was the same way I felt, you know, about pretty much any male singer who was that talented. And could express how he felt to him because I'm, you know, I'm this short little nerd with a lot of insecurity issues, and I don't know how to talk to a girl, especially when I'm shorter than so many of them. And even to this day, I still stand at about five foot five. So it's uh, anyway, that's beside the point. Um, so already you're, I was dealing with a lot of just ignorant, um, uneducated, uncouth, boorish behavior from my peers. And so I had to learn very early on to just, one, not let it get me down, but also more to the point of, you know what? I could easily get upset. I could easily defend till the end of time the music I like. And I still do. There are still certain artists to this day I still have to defend liking. You know, you know, the Goo Goo Dolls is one of them. We just talked about them in our last segment. Goo Goo Dolls, one of Daughtry I've had to defend till the end of time. Like, tired of defending people I like. Like, give me a break. But I had to deal with that growing up. And and it was difficult. And, you know, trying to make friends and trying to, you know, talk about, you know, what I liked and trying to ask people what they liked and trying to find common ground. That's hard. That's really, really, really hard. And it, you know, at times it, made me not want to talk to people at times. There, it made me not want to talk to people, and it also made me a bit more skeptical about other people. Not in a cynical way, but just a little more cautious. You're, you know, as, as Aspies, we're trying to process everything. And it's like a radar going on. Is this person good? Is this person bad? Are they a question mark? Like, what are they? What is this person that I'm talking to? What are their intentions? What are they thinking? You know, I'm constantly, constantly on that radar, as many of other people I know who have Asperger's are. 
Number two, and this kind of goes back to what I was saying, the outside world can be a terrifying place. Oh my God. I mean, living in two worlds as a kid was completely difficult. Oh my God. I, when I was in, uh, 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 special ed classes, I was Zach Morris. I was king of the world. I was popular. People liked me. And, you know, they sometimes would ask me my take on music and TV shows. And we had a lot of similarities. Thank God for that. But also at the time, you know, my friends also had gifts that I did not have. You know, a lot of them could draw. I barely got through art class. I can safely say that. Um, although I had a really great art teacher, um, who looked like Sally Struthers, very sweet lady and who encouraged me and every other student that was in there. And, um, she encouraged us to look someone in the eye and shake their hand. There were two teachers I had that were like that. That was, um, it was that lady, I'm blanking on her name. She was a very sweet woman. And David Frederick, um, who was one of my teachers in the fourth grade, and he ended up teaching seventh grade math at my middle school. He was not my math teacher, but he was an incredibly kind man, and he would always see me, and we always had good conversations, and I hope he's doing well in life. I hope he's still teaching, if that's possible, because he was always very inspiring to me and to every other person I knew who um, had Asperger's or autism or any other form of you know, learning disability. He was always there for us. I can safely say I can't speak for every student. I can speak for that group. Um, But yeah, um, what were we talking about? The outside world, right? So the outside world can be a very scary place. I'm one of those people that, because of my Asperger's, and I speak for everyone, a lot of people who have it, um, our sensitivity level on a scale of 1 to 10 is about a 20, maybe a 25 on a bad day. (laughs) Yeah, on um, but it generally is, and it's way over the charts. It really is. Um, and I'll use I'll use the example that um, Mar gives in this um, article. Imagine this: you're in a room filled with people talking loudly, and there are ten different radios blasting white noise across the speakers. Okay, and you know, especially if it's music you don't like, that could knock the paint off your wall. Um, at a ticking clock, a nasty smell, a throbbing headache that you have, and the noise of a traffic jam, especially if there's a motorcycle, like, rrr, rrr, rrr. sometimes the outside world is like that to me. And especially if I wake up on the wrong side of the bed this morning or I get um, um, difficult news or unexpected news, um, we don't always do well with surprises, ladies and gentlemen. Just say, so, you know, we just don't. We just don't. It's um, prepare us as much as you can in advance for some of these curveballs, please, if you can. It's, I only ask that to my friends who um, know me and know my Asperger as well. Just bear with me here. Um, and the part of our brain doesn't know how to process that. Um, the way it's designed, it's trying to organize and process everything. That volume just smashes it like a sledgehammer and it's annoying and it's crazy it really is and there are times where you know when I hear that I just want to put my earbuds in and 
you know, blast music from the 90s, and it doesn't necessarily have to be the Goo Goo Dolls. I mean, I love, I love Matchbox 20, and I mentioned I like Michael Bolton, and um, Richard Marks is absolutely terrific. He's from late 80s, early 90s. You know, uh, Dave Matthews Band, which a friend from my church, Melissa, is a fan of, uh, and they, they, had, they had some a lot of success in the 2000s as well, especially with songs like Every Day and, and uh, Where Are You Going? Those are great songs. Ugh. But I need that to calm down if unexpected noises like that are happening. It's like that calms me down. Or at least if a friend of mine's with me to give me the notion of, hey, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. I'm right here, I'm right here, man, I got you. Or Jen's like, it's okay, sweetie, I got you. It's okay, sweetie, you know, it's, just be there for us, you know, be on our side, you know, assure us that it's all okay and that it's gonna go away soon. Cause, But I'd also like to think that the people that are in my corner, um, are probably annoyed by most of those sounds as well. Uh, <laughs> number three, we're not rude, okay? Um, the article in this portion goes on to read, my brain isn't wired to focus in on people's voices. I have to work very hard to listen to what people are saying. Sometimes I'll write down what they're saying or repeat it back to myself under my breath. I, I do that almost every day. My, um, Jennifer will, will definitely vouch for you on that. And pretty much every manager I've worked with will probably confirm that to you as well. I'm confirming almost everything just to make sure that I got it right. I didn't miss anything. You know, I, I very often struggle with people's names and faces. This actually happened to me recently. Um, there, there are two uh, very lovely, very talented reporters that I work with named Megan and Shannon. And they uh, worked on Christmas Day. They anchored the 5 o'clock and the 6 o'clock newscast. Um, and I was doing Proctor for them. And I kid you not, I saw them a few days later. And I thought I was talking to Shannon when I ended up talking, when I found out I was later talking to Megan. I, I couldn't tell the two of them apart because they do at times look like twins. They really do. They're <laughs> but... Um, that does happen sometimes. I'm like, what's your name again? I apologize. You know, um, and a lot of us are wearing name tags, so it's not really a big issue. And because we do newscasts together and we see each other, you know, it's gotten it's gotten a little bit better. Um, and also, um, the way we speak, sometimes things don't always come out right. Sometimes we can sound brutal and blunt. Uh, we don't mean to be. We're just trying to... Uh, cut through a lot of noise and BS that's out there because there's a lot of that out there. There's a lot of, um, and I mentioned this on another episode, a pre previous episode we did when we talked about difficult people. We deal with a lot of loudmouths, fast talkers, and chameleons. So, you know, we're one of those people we don't like that nonsense or that obnoxious behavior. So, you know, at a certain point, you just get tired of it. Um, <laughs> Elton John used the phrase, I'm getting too old to keep my mouth shut. And <laughs> believe me, you, I am in my 30s and I'm kind of already there. I have been for a while on just, you know, certain things and people in the world that I just can't stand. I am one of those people, I'm going to call a spade a spade. If I think someone's wrong, I'm going to say why they're wrong. If I don't like something, I'm very open and honest about it. And I have friends that are very, very observant of that and um, 
thank you for that. Thank you for your patience. You know, just I, I got my things I can't stand. I got my things I really love. You all know what they are. And if I don't know of something, I'll say I don't know. And sometimes it shocks um, the people in my circle. But hey, it is what it is. Um, I could do a whole segment on things that would surprise you that I don't know about um, or have never seen. So we'll, we'll get to that, I promise. Number four, I like repetition and routine. And as Mar goes on to say, in the morning I get up, I turn my lights on and move my blankets from my bed to my sofa. I then go to the bathroom, wash my hands, make breakfast and watch TV. Only once I've done all these things, am I ready to start the day? If the routine is messed up in some way, I have to start again and I won't get anything else done. Now I can relate to that because there's a part of our brain that is very obsessive compulsive Like we have to get into certain routines to just get our engines roaring. And my routine includes uh, waking up with Chestnut, taking her for a walk, which usually involves uh, getting her on the leash. She actually tried to escape uh, earlier today. Um, And I just said, just to get back on the leash. She literally tried to escape uh, through it. And when I came back upstairs, luckily Jennifer... um, Help me fix the leash. She didn't escape. We were able to adjust it, but she came back in. And when we came back up here, Jennifer helped me fix it. So thanks for that, baby. Um, and then after the walk, I'll bring Chestnut back in. I'll feed her, give her water. And then I'll sit down and make breakfast um, as well. Um, usually it's toast with fruit or sometimes it's toast and turkey bacon. And I'm usually either listening to a podcast that I was listening to or eyes listening to music or catching up on a game show that I really, really like, um, or catching up on something that, um, I didn't see last night, but got on Hulu. So I was able to catch it the next day. God bless Hulu and other streaming services. May I just say that? And I must say Mars, um, television, um, resume is quite good on here. And I say resume shows that she likes, uh, specifically friends, scrubs and house. I love scrubs. I must say a huge, huge fan. It's Got me into the work of Mr. Zach Braff, who I think is a talented actor and director. Um, loved him in The Last Kiss. I thought he was fantastic in Garden State. Um, he uh, was really good in Chicken Little. Uh, Going in Style, which he directed, was uh, really good. He did not act in it, but he was really good in it. Uh, Wish I Was Here, which he uh, started and directed. And he went to Kickstarter to get the funds for that film. Um, oh, absolute genius Zach Braff is. Um and embraces his nerdiness too. Um, and so did the character he played um, for almost a decade of um, John Dorian. Just, oh my God, he was absolutely funny and witty and optimistic. And he embraced who he uniquely was. But going back to routine and repetition, I am the same way. I have to get all that stuff done and then my day can begin. And Sometimes I'll lay back down with Jennifer and make sure she's okay. Because usually I'm the first one in the house to wake up. Um, If we're waking up at the same time, it's usually because it's Sunday morning and we have to get ready for church, which we watch on my my iPad. It's it's just something that we do and is very precious to us. It sort of is our um, thanking God for the week and counting our blessings and sort of recharging the batteries and making us realize that there are bigger things in the world besides us. Really, it it really, really keeps you from being selfish and entitled and arrogant and 
pretty much all the things that um, we're kind of born into the world with, and we have to learn how to fight off every single day. I heard um, I heard the guys from South Park kind of describing the um, at, at Trey Parker and Matt Stone. I heard them describing um, the kids in South Park like that, and you know we have to teach kids to um, how to function society and behave and, you know, it, it, it's a challenge. It really, it really, really is. I can safely say that. Um, not as a parent, but just from watching that show, it's like, oh my God, it's, it is like peanuts on acid. I will simply say that, but it is brilliant in so many ways as well. Um, but yeah, no repetition routine, super important. You know, um, sometimes I wake up in an alarm. Sometimes I don't, but I love the days when Jennifer and I can sleep in and chestnuts are alarm. And then if I have to lay back down for a little bit, so be it. But generally speaking, it's walk chestnut, feed her, walk, feed her, walk her, uh, give her water, um, make breakfast, you know, listen to music, read the news. Um, you know, it's just, it's, it's what I do. It's a sort of starting the day, making sure you put yourself in a good mood. I know people are surprised, like with the news of the world, how, how do you do that? Well, I've got, you know, websites that I like and I read, Huffington Post, Media I, you know, those are my main ones. I think those are really, really good. They're really good for what they do. And now we can add BuzzFeed to that group too, because I think they've got a lot of good articles here. And this is um, not the first one I've read, but it's one of my favorites. Number five, um, as we're moving along, um, number five, it's not just Asperger's that I have to deal with. Yes, so, so true. Mar goes on to say a lot of people with autism also experience anxiety. Growing up with the knowledge that you are different and that you struggle, pardon me, that you struggle more than other kids can take a toll on your self-esteem. Absolutely. I mean, when you're not accepted by your other peers, particularly those in mainstream, it's hard. I mean, I can remember going back as far as like, you know, the third grade. I'll just go back as far as the third grade. Music class, um, how to do square dancing. Did anyone in school have to do square dancing in music class or gym class? Hated it, hated it, hated it. And, you know, it, the thing I didn't like most about it was to the girls in that class, I wasn't cute. I wasn't their cup of tea, you know? I was shorter too. Like All the girls were taller than me by that period. They wouldn't let me hold their hand, and they just when they would when I would get to them, they'd be like, "Yuck!" And that's not a good feeling to go through. It, it, it's not awesome when you know you're Screech, and they're wanting you to be Fred Savage from the Wonder Years. You just that's what they want, you know. And you're not that, so you just sort of have to say, "Hey, this is who this is who you got," you know. Um, and, and as a result of that. As a result of that rejection, not just from the opposite sex, but also just from, you know, dealing with teachers that don't always get what you're going through and being told to shut up, you know, not getting picked to play football or or basketball or baseball. And as a result of it, you know, you end up having a dislike for sports. I'm one of those people, like, I played sports as a kid. By the time I got to be a teenager, it just, it stopped being a thing I like. And I'm still not a huge sports fan this day just not I'd, I'd much rather you know listen to music or read a book that's just what I would rather do um or watch a stand-up special because I'm, I'm definitely I'm definitely wired that differently um 
And as a result of it, um, like with Mar, I also had to go into therapy. And she said, after four years of therapy, I can now manage my mental illnesses. I'm fortunate to have a support family and great group of friends to help me out. But I also keep busy as a mental health and autism campaigner. It builds my self-esteem and it gives me a sense of purpose. Now, it's very inspiring, may I say. Um, I've been in and out of therapy since I was 12. I've been in with, you know, middle school counselors and high school counselors. Um, I saw a therapist when I first moved to Florida after having bad dreams about um, someone that was in Delaware that I couldn't get my mind off of. Um, someone I really liked and just, you know, ultimately ended up, you know, projecting me, but, you know, and I didn't know how to move on from that. And I also didn't know how to move on from that shadow that was Delaware. Going into therapy helped me realize, you know what? Florida's not my home. There's a lot of things I like about the state. I'm going to embrace those things. I also dealt with, um, something that had been on my mind since I was 10. Um, there was a 13-year-old girl that I really liked, and she took advantage of me. Just, you know, I liked her and she took advantage of me. And I, um, it stayed with me for a long time, and that therapist helped me get through what happened, you know. I'm not going to say what she did, and I'm not going to say what the therapist did to help me, but it was, um... It was very, very, very helpful. And I saw a therapist earlier this year as well. Um, it's just, I'm so glad I got, you know, one-on-one -on -one help that I really needed. I'm glad I got to express how I feel. And what it did was it helped me not have to hide in a cave. I think the thing about Asperger's is a lot of us, can crawl into a cave when things get really, really, really tough and we don't know how to communicate how we feel because we're afraid we're going to sound wooden or we're going to sound over-emotional and either one is an extreme and we're, I'm not really a big fan of extremes and I don't want to, again, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier of, I don't want the red lights blinking off, you know, I just, when I'm frustrated, I don't. Sometimes they happen, but... I really try really, really hard to avoid that. I just, I, I'm at a point in my life where I want less drama, I want peace, but um, anyway, let's move on. Uh, number six, I like this one a lot. Uh, I'm not Rain Man, but I'm not unintelligent either. Love that. Uh, if you drop, this is, this is interesting, I like this because I love the movie Rain Man. I thought Dustin Hoffman did a terrific job um, in, the, in that role. Uh, I'm also a Jeopardy fan too, and I liked uh, J Joseph Wapner, may he rest in peace as well. And The People's Court, which I still watch from time to time to this day. Um, if you drop a load of toothpicks on the floor, I, can, I can't instantly tell you how many of those are in there. Most people with autism aren't geniuses, but it doesn't mean we're dumb. My brain takes a little bit longer to process things. I might be a little bit slower than average, slower than the average person, but I'll still arrive at the same answer. I don't appreciate it when people assume that I'm not capable just because it takes me longer to understand things. My brain works differently to the average person, so don't expect me to learn like everyone else. Now, 
I can say this too. We're also little professors in certain subjects. Mine happened to be um, current events, American history, and uh, pop culture. I also can look at something a couple of times and like remember it. I can have a conversation with someone uh, and then six months later, a year later, even years later, I can remember what we were talking about and where we were very often. And yet there are times I forget my keys, I forget to turn off something when I'm at work, I forget to, you know, turn off something when I'm at home, I have to come back sometimes and just make that correction, but I do it. But I do it because I understand the importance of follow through. I really do. It's taken me a long time to get to that point. Believe me, you. And I'm saying this to the people that have, I'm saying this to people who have an automatic opinion about me and other people with Asperger's or people they just don't understand and don't want to understand. We're not stupid, okay? We're not stupid, we're not a spaz. We are not that negative, ignorant perception that you present us to be. So knock it off. Knock it off. You probably don't know a lot about Asperger's to begin with even if you say you do. And I would recommend to you, read a book or actually read something about Asperger's before you make another snap judgment. Find out what we're all about. Have a little patience because the world needs a little bit less ignorance and a lot more patience and acceptance. Which brings me to number seven. I'm okay with being alone. And I can safely say, after being with around um, certain people over the years that um, are um, obnoxious obnoxious or chameleons or loudmouths or think that they're the center of the universe, sometimes it's awesome to, like, come home and I can just sit in my chair and, you know pour a glass of um, white wine and watch the Game Show Network or watch music videos or, you know, just unwind, unwind. And it's in that moment, I don't (laughs) feel pressured to quote-unquote act normal as Mara was talking about in in this uh, portion of the article. Um, I know I can come across as being quite antisocial, but in fact, I'm just selectively social. Yes, yes, yes. That's how we are. Because we're skeptical of some people. Because we've been ostracized and teased and bullied so much in our life. It's hard to trust people. It's hard. It, first of all, it's exhausting, as we were talking about earlier, to just, one, get into a normal routine and try to relate to the rest of the world. Because honestly, we don't know who to trust. Early on in our lives, we want to be accepted by everybody. But after a certain period, and particularly after, you know, insecurity and harassment and bullying and dealing with, as I've said, quote unquote, difficult people, and there's, as I've said, there's more than one degree of them, it's nice to just come home after work and just not deal with that toxicity, you know? And, you know, it's, um, I love my friends. Some of them I've known for 20 years, and some of them I've known for about a decade, and some I've known for a short period of time. But I'm one of those people that 
it's important that when I get home, I just want to turn off the noise that I don't want to hear. And it's just, it's so helpful. It's so important to do that for yourself. You have to go to bed in a good mood. You have to wake up in a good mood. And if you're going to go to bed in a good mood, you have to turn off the toxic noise that you hear on a daily basis. Whether it was that loud motorcycle that you heard on the way to work, or whether it was annoying sirens you couldn't get out of your head, or people not knowing how to drive and they don't know how to signal, or whether you got you had a confrontation with somebody at work or somebody at work said something that you heard, may not have directed at you, but that was toxic and obnoxious and just flat out rude. It's good to come home and just turn that noise off and turn on the stuff that you want to hear. That's so important. It really is. It's going to get the stress out of you that you have to learn how to deal with because it's not going to go away, but you can deal with it better if you know how to unwind. All right, number eight. I don't really understand eye contact. Yeah, don't get it. Eye contact is weird. I agree. I agree with Mark. It is very, very weird. Why do people feel a sense of connection when they stare at someone else's eyeballs, she says. Sometimes people think that I'm ignoring them because I'm not looking at them. Okay, number one, not true, not true, not true. Here's the truth. But the truth is I am probably trying very hard to listen and understand what they're saying. She later goes on to say, I just find looking at people uncomfortable. I do, especially if the situation's uncomfortable and especially if I sense there is hostility or I sense that, you know, they don't like what I have to say or they're not that wild about me. That's when it's very, very um, awkward and uncomfortable. Or if I'm struggling to know facially if they're interested or not interested, it's hard. It's really, really hard for us to read facial cues. I still struggle with it to this day. Um, and that never goes away. That's, that's just part of people with Asperger's. But I've gotten better at it. I, I had pretty much every speech pathologist I had from age 7 to 14 always, always emphasize eye contact. And I'm glad they did. I'm glad they helped me with it because they knew it was going to be a struggle for us. But they never gave up on me or any of my friends growing up. And they're the ones that encourage us to be unique and, you know didn't tell us to shut up or, you know, didn't write us off. And I love them for that. I really, really love them for that. Oh, and um, the first one I ever had, um, I was a bit of a brat when I was seven years old to you the first time I met you. And I'm sorry for that. I, I really am. I am. Um, I've grown up a lot, as you know, and, you know, I've gotten to a career I love. I now have a podcast as well. I'm getting married. I'm a dog daddy. And I know you are your dog parent as well. And Eh, you know, we're all just trying to figure out this world that we live in. But, yeah, thanks for your patience on me and to every teacher I had and speech pathologist and occupational therapist and guidance counselor. And you know, just thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, and our last one. I'm weird. Guess what? So am I, Mar. Always have been. Always will be. Um, one of the best things about having Asperger, she says, is that we have a, I have a vivid imagination. So do I. Um, my daydreams, my daydreaming abilities can easily trump the average person's. Oh God, me too. I have dreams that in one instance I am 
Larry King, one of my talk show idols. I would not want to be a talk show. I would not have wanted to be a talk show if not for people like Larry King or David Letterman or Johnny Carson or Conan O'Brien or Jon Stewart. Those are the guys that inspired me how to talk to people. That's how I figured out how to have conversations that aren't one way but are two way. I'm getting way better at that, and I have because of people like that. So thank you guys for your help with that. Um, I come out with some weird sayings, and sometimes I'm I seem like I'm a million miles away. But I wouldn't change my brain for the world. Asperger syndrome is a struggle, but the positives outweigh the negatives. I don't need a cure and I'm not broken. I'm different and I like the way I see the world. In fact, I like, I, in fact, I quite like being weird. Oh my God, Mar, me too. I was just talking to Jennifer about this um, a little while ago. There are things about me that are just weird and I'm okay with that. You know, um, give you a few examples of this. Um, I like cereal that's raw. I don't like putting milk on my cereal. Never have, never will. Mm, soggy. Ugh, no, thank you. Um, I like my Cheerios or my Cinnamon Toast Crunch without milk. Just let me open it up and chew it like that in, in with my spoon, obviously. <laughs> never eat my hands. I'm not a barbarian. I really am not. <laughs> um, I saved that for my potato wedges and, and uh, chicken wings. <laughs> um, but... I don't even, I also very rarely drink milk with my cereal. Sometimes I'll have like um, my sweet tea. It's it's what I do. It's one of my go-tos in the morning. Um, every now and then orange juice, but mostly it's tea. About 90, 95% of the time it's, it's sweet tea. Um, I like Sex and the City. I'm a straight guy and I love that series. I discovered it as a teenager when it went into reruns on TBS and on other... Um, syndicate outlets that aired it in syndication late at night and one of my celebrity crushes going growing up because of that was kim cattrall who played samantha jones oh oh my god like (laughs) cougar alert for every single like you know guy that liked women over the age of 40 i was i'll raise my hand like hey i had a huge crush on Kim Cattrall. I think she's funny. I think she's witty, as her character Samantha Jones was in that series. She was confident. She knew who she was. She definitely would, I definitely safely say, Samantha set every guy on the right path in life, no matter how the relationship ended. I'm very confident, whether it was men her own age or whether it was much younger men like Smith. Um, She know. I love that show growing up. I thought uh, Sarah Jessica Parker, who was the star and executive producer, absolutely fantastic and funny and witty and uh, relatable and lovable. And she was very honest about who she was. And she never hid away. And I always loved that. And she was a writer, too. I I have a deep respect for anyone who can interpret the English language as well as she has. I mean, like, it's like her... George Carlin and Andy Rooney were the people I remember growing up who were like the best at that. They really were. And Christopher Hitchens too. I'll, I'll put Christopher Hitchens in that group as well. Um, oh, but I mean, yeah. And I'm, I'm so happy that HBO Max is bringing it back. I'm, I'm, I'm so used to calling it HBO Max now, now that um, the streaming service itself has morphed. But I'm so excited to see 
Sex and the City come back. They're going to start a shooting um, this spring. Uh, and I'm excited to see um, Sarah Jessica Parker, Cynthia Nixon, and Kristen Davis all back together. Um, so it's Carrie, Miranda, and Charlotte will all be back. But Samantha won't be, um, as you all probably know, who are fans of the show and are pop culture geeks like me. You probably know that Kim Cattrall uh, is not coming back to Sex and the City. Um I am anxious to see who will be coming. Sarah Jessica recently said that the fourth character will be New York City. And I went, well, that'll be interesting. And then hopefully they can show the diversity of that city the way that they did on the show for six seasons and the way they did in the movies. That's what I'm crossing my fingers on. I, I'm positive that the reboot's going to go well. It's going to be 10 episodes. And I'm hoping if Sarah Jessica, the ladies, and HBO are, are happy with um. 10 episodes in this reboot that there will be more i just think it's going to be exciting it really really is great to see shows that you like come back and come back in a beautiful way will and grace was that way when they came back to nbc for a few seasons i thought the way they came back and just the humor and the writing and oh my god it all just worked and culminated into beauty and humor and Everything that I look for in a television show. And those, uh, Will and Grace and Sex and the City are two of the best shows. Will and Grace, same deal. I have to defend liking, maybe not defending liking that as much as Sex and the City, but, you know, I mean, just in terms of just the writing and accepting of, you know, people that I had never seen on television before. I mean, Will and Grace was the first time I ever saw, you know, gay and lesbian people on television. And to me, it was like, oh, this is Oh, really? Cool. You know, and you know, you just, you end up learning to be happy for people who love who they love and are comfortable in their own skin and that love one another. So the show essentially is about friendship. I remember Deborah Messing saying in an interview that she wanted to meet Eric McCormick before they um, started shooting the show. She said, you can't fake chemistry because the show is about friendship. And she absolutely loved Eric. And they were, they were a great team together, as was... Um, Sean Hayes and Megan Mullally. Um, I got to get to Megan's podcast that she did with her husband, Nick Offerman. Uh, I, I think all four I think all four of those cast members, Megan, Sean, um, Eric, and Deborah, are all talented. Um, I don't know what the future will be for, you know, them now that the show is officially over. But what I hope for is that they continue making us laugh, making us smile, and... Uh, shake up the world in a, in a big way because I know they're very good at that as is Sex and the City um, has been I, I expect that greatness you know in anyone that I'm a fan of I really do you know um, I like croutons we're going back to odd things about um, about me since we're talking about weirdness um, and not to say that Sex and the City is but to some people if you're if you're a straight guy and you say that People just have an automatic opinion. And honestly, brush it off. Seriously, if you like something, but people think it's weird that you like it, who cares? You know why you like it. You don't have to defend it. And if it's not hurting anyone, again, who cares? But anyway, uh, let's move on. Let's, I wanted to clarify that real quick. Let's continue. Um, I like croutons. Not in my salad, but as a late night snack. If I am to come home and pour a glass of wine, 
I really want to have a great snack next to me. And sometimes croutons are my go-to. I also like putting them in my tomato soup that I get uh, from Publix. But I also love crunchy raw items. I just do. I love vegetables too. Sometimes I'll put ranch on it, but fundamentally, hmm. I just, there's a crunch sound. It's like, I love that sound. It's really, really good. I know it doesn't sound all that good over the phone, but you know, we're trying. I'm improvising here. But so I have my own way of doing things, you know? Um, and I'm okay with that. I'm comfortable in my own skin. And all of you should be as well. I just gave a few examples of that of things that people just don't get about me. But it's never like, you know, in most of the cases, no one's ever mean to me about it. Okay, yeah, I've come across um, people who have made ignorant remarks about, you know, me liking certain television shows, i.e. Sex and City and Will and Grace. But again, I go back to, you know why you like something. If you have to defend that, to someone who, you know, has an automatic opinion about you already and it's not going to change and it's an ignorant one, blow them off. Seriously. You don't need the approval of every single person in the world. You just don't. It's one of the keys to failure. It really is. Because it can drag you down. It can make you exhausted. And it really twists your sense of reality and your sense of self-worth. You gotta embrace the things you love. And who knows? There's probably other people in the world that feel the same way that you do. And I want to say that article is absolutely incredible. Was incredible. I loved reading it. I am going to um, remind um, all of you that BuzzFeed is a great, great. Um, online source. I would highly recommend reading it. I know I'm going to as we, um, as I get through my long weekend, uh, when I have some downtime on my own, but as we close our podcast, you know what I like to say, have that glass of wine, talk to that girl, read that book that you've been dying to read, ask that girl to dance after you get to know her and make her laugh. Um, call your mom, call your dad, call your grandparents, especially while they're here, because you don't know how much time you're going to have left with them. Um, do something nice for somebody else. Be generous. And don't give in to toxicity. We're all better than that. We love you. Thank you for listening to the Aspie Files. And you can listen to us on Apple Podcasts and on Google Podcasts and on Spotify and on Breaker and on Radio Public. And we love you for listening. Thank you very much. We will see you next time.